Well, hi everyone. Welcome back to Decon 101. Uh, my name is Monica Elvin. If you don't remember me from last week when we were talking about time, I have here with me Emily. Yes. And um, actually, if you did listen to our podcast last week, you'll know that there is a third and fourth member to our team. That's Michela. Unfortunately, you know, she is not going to be able to be with us in the studio today. However, you will be hearing from her. Um, and, you know, if nothing else, I think that that just further proves our point from last week that time is an illusion. Because when you hear this, <laughs> you're going to think she's right here. Hopefully. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We just won't be asking her questions and uh, things like that. So we miss her already. Yes. Know that we're not intentionally ignoring her when yes. we don't <laughs> ask for her and put on things. We're Absolutely. just uh, saving saving her for later of course and as uh, always for uh housekeeping reasons if there's any mistakes you know just listen look at the notes on the podcast but any other mistakes will always be posted in the notes uh thanks to our lovely editor candace so we can own our human mistakes of course <laughs> we're not trying to hide anything from you guys so, that being said, now this week we are going to talk about money. Cue the money, money, money music. Um, so, actually, Michelle did bring this question up when we were discussing this, and I thought it was a great way to introduce this topic. What is the most important purchase that you've made this year? Emily, I'll let you go ahead. What is the most important purchase? I think the most important purchase I made this year, I made it with my stimulus check, actually, for coronavirus, (laughs) and I paid for our car repairs because I was moving across the state. Uh, I moved from Seattle, Washington to Spokane, Washington, so I could come to grad school here, and I knew that I needed a good car, and so I spent about $500 of my stimulus check on car repairs. I know that that hurts, but at the same time, you feel good. It's housekeeping, you know? You feel like you're you're really stepping into that adult world. Um, So I actually, kind of for similar means, because it sounds like that was important because then it allowed you to come to grad school Mm -hmm. here, I would have to say that my most important purchase this year, um, if we count debt as a purchase, which, you know, it is, um, would be grad school as well. And actually, if you ask me that question for, um, you know, to to my life, to this point in my life, I would have to say that my undergrad education. So regardless, education would be my answer. Um, but then I was thinking about it, you know, does that mean that education holds higher value for me than money? Um, and you know what, I have to be a little bit honest here and own up to the fact that I would be pretty hesitant to tell you guys how much I paid and or owe on my education um, because that money does still hold quite a bit of value um, in my mind. You know, whether I want it to or not, it it does say something to me because money does talk. Um, so I actually wanted to share a little bit of, a, we'll call it a rags to riches story with you guys. Um, now keep in mind that I haven't gotten rich yet, but that is the goal. <laughs> it's in the works. <laughs> yes. It's, it's in the pipeline. We're in the process. You guys are getting the sneak preview um, to my you know autobiography later in life. So I grew up in Oakland, California. Um, to just give you the, the quick version, when I was growing up there, we had the third highest uh, violent crime rate in the nation. Um, so, you know, albeit to say it would not be somewhere you would choose to live if you could afford to live somewhere else um, or had, you know, other means that afforded you that. So 
that's that was my background. Um, however, I actually went to an Ivy League college, um, and I was recruited there for athletics. Um, now, one thing that most people do not know about Ivy League schools is that they do not give athletic scholarships. Now, again, we can look at what what does money say to to Ivy League schools. Well, clearly, money is something that affords value, right? Money is something that shows your principles, your priorities. And so for these Ivy League schools, athletics were not a priority. And so they did not want to allocate money to it that they could allocate to an academic program. Now, for me, um, well, (laughs) to give you an idea, when I was a freshman, the school that I went to would have cost me 68 grand a year. And by my senior year, it was up to 72 grand. Yes, so not uh, in the range of possibility for most people coming from my neighborhood. Now, in this instance, I was awarded grants and scholarships um, because of my economic disadvantage. So, you know, money to me said that I had an opportunity that I wouldn't have had if I were middle class. Um, Now, what did money say to the people who I was in class with? I was just going to ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> it begs the question, right? Uh, you know, did I feel different um, or, you know, lesser? And gosh darn it, i got to say that I did. It was a culture mm-hmm. shock. Um, I actually had a teammate. Now, okay, anybody here who's played a sport or been on any kind of close community um, grouping like that, your teammates are your family, you know, mm-hmm. especially when you spend four years with them. Um, you're in a locker room together. You see each other naked. It's it's real close quarters, right? These you are smell people. each other's dirty socks. Yes. <laughs> it's a relationship that is just, it's special on its own. So I felt very close to these people. You know, these were my family. I related to them. Um, now I had a teammate once ask me, because I worked three different jobs while I was in school um, to support, you know, just living expenses, books, food, you know, those basic things. Um, And I had a teammate ask me, Monica, why do you work so much? And I just, I had, um, I had an awkward pause uh, because I was so confused by the question. I, I mean, to me, it made perfect sense why I work because I have to. But it took me a while to realize that that question had never come to her mind, right? She had never had to think about money. So it was a luxury for her to not have to think about money. And I have to admit that I was, I was embarrassed to tell her then that I, I had to work. So instead I told her that I like to be busy. And isn't that just the saddest thing? (laughs) Oh, I work because I have nothing better to do than, you know, flip pizzas or clean out drains. Um, You know, I enjoy waking up at three in the morning to open a coffee shop. Okay, you should have seen right through me, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, that's the sad truth of it is we do attribute money in this very valuable way that affects our self-concept you know somehow it relates to who we are so rather than seeing my teammate and myself as just you know on this parallel line um you know in different spots I saw us on this vertical line where I was uh, very much at the bottom you know if anybody's ever seen Moneyball it actually referenced obviously it has to do with Oakland but he goes you know there's every other team in the league up here at the you know at the pinnacle 
then there's the lowest teams, and then there's 50 feet of crap, and then there's the Oakland A's. That's pretty much how I felt. Um, and it's, you know, and it was completely based on this monetary value ranking. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll touch on this a little bit more. I know Michelle has a lot to say about this and Emily as well. Um, but I think one of the, the biggest takeaways to, to, that I want you guys to think about is what does money say to you and what Mm -hmm. does money say in different situations? Um, because, you know, money has not always been, this driving factor in our lives, right? It's hard for us to picture a life without uh, cash value, without, you know, this way of dictating our transactions. However, before money, we just had this association based on kinship and loyalty. Um, You know, it was this communal, I guess, uh, effort to support one another rather than transaction-based. Um, and I think, you know, Emily can give us a little bit better of a history on this uh, than I can. So I'll actually hand the mic over to her now. Awesome. Well, today to think about our, our or understanding of money actually starts with how we evolved. So again, the same way that we think, oh, time is a very concrete thing. It's something that, you know, we use to measure. It's something very modern. Nope. Money and time are both very ancient and dear to us. Next, we're going to tell you that the Easter Bunny is fake and Santa's not real either. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Um, So evolutionarily speaking, it's really hard to track money because like some things are just part of our DNA. But based on what our close relatives are that we've evolved from, we can see that money and a sense of making value is shown in like monkeys and chimps and even humans as young as two. So even before kids are like really talking, there's some sort of understanding that things have value. I trade you this toy, so you trade me that toy. So it's not necessarily the the idea that money has value, but it's this idea that certain things have certain values and one thing is more desirable than another thing. It has more arbitrary value. Kind of like how you were saying last episode that we have these schemas that help us understand and organize things. These like inherent ways that we understand how things have value is this same sort of schema. It's just a way that we understand things. Um, really the, the history of like economics, not just money, but economics starts around like 9,000 to 6,000 BC. So like you were saying before, a lot of those ways that we understood value, you see your neighbor struggling and you say, oh, I will loan you my horse so you can plow your field. And I know later down the line, because we have this relationship, you're going to help me out later. However, as things started to develop in organized and developed countries, though, in 9,000, 6,000 BC, people started to have the problem, I need to buy things now but the person who I want to get them from doesn't have a relationship with me. So money and barter systems were a way for people to quickly build the relationship and buy things that they didn't have the funds or the goods to trade for. So like, for example, you're a farmer, 6,000 BC, and you want to grow some rice in your field. However, you are part of a very young family, and so you don't have the ability 
to you you don't have this store of grain from the previous year to seed your field so you go to your neighbor and you say okay barter system if you give me the seed to plant in my field i will give you five of my horses once my horses breed or something like that so that barter system kind of came up with this idea of debt so if you're ever thinking that you want to, you know, murder or yell at the person who came up with the idea of like student loans, you got to go all the way back to 6000 BC to yell at the farmers who decided that they needed a way to keep track of who owed who what. Men. <laughs> um, so and then as things developed, you know, there was this commodity economic system. So the value of goods that were Everything had value, but it was based on the value of what they were used for. So gold is really valuable even now today because it has a lot of uses. And so that was a really great way for people to barter. They'd say, oh, you know, you give me a certain amount of gold for your horse. You can use the gold. I can use the horse. And then in different places around the world, certain things had a lot more value compared to other things. So you might have a gold mine right next to your house. So if someone brought gold over to trade with you, you'd be like, oh, that's worthless. But if you were in an area where there were no horses and someone brought a horse, a horse would be extremely valuable. So everything kind of fluctuated based on the, the value of the goods based on the scarcity, much like the way that the new iPhone is super, super expensive because you can't get a new one yet. So they're very pricey. Apple's playing us I again. know. Uh, money, actually, the first, like, mention of, like, actual coinage um, in writing actually goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Um, they were taught, there's mention of it in regards to slaves, which is very interesting. And then around 1000 to 400 BC, those were when coins started to be used to promote trade. And so a lot of the reason for that is because we started to have big, organized governments that would come along and have coins that would help unify their people and then also politicians kings rulers could then trade the coins for other places and then you know governments they could place taxes right and so if you have coins it's a lot easier to tax things than it is to tax a barter system um and then coins go all the way up and things don't really change or develop until about 1450 and that's when banks really start to come into the picture um so people are accumulating lots and lots of wealth they need a place to keep their wealth and they may want a place where their wealth will be safe that's not in their house because your house may burn down or something like that or maybe you want to not travel with 500 pieces of gold. And so you have just a note that says, once you get to this other bank, this is how much you're worth. Um, and so banks were a really great way for people to travel with money safely, the same way that we do today. I don't take $400 of cash out when I go to the airport to go travel somewhere. I take my debit card. And unless people know my PIN, they can't steal my money. Honestly, that's... I didn't really think about it like that, but I never carry cash on me because mm -hmm. the worst that can happen if I lose my credit card is I have to go and freeze it. Exactly. Exactly. And so they had like these prototypes of debit cards and credit cards all the way back when banks were starting to be used. And it was, you would just take a bank note with you that said, 
oh, I'm worth this much money, so when I get to France, even though I'm from England, the bank will give me money, which is kind of cool. And then, of course, you know, like we were saying, the internet completely revolutionized everything as well in, in that time period because then, of course, we can electronically transfer funds. I can send my mom $20 because she paid for a candle the other day or something like that. I can send my brother $5 for a Starbucks, even though he lives in Oklahoma. I can, and, and I can pay for my food electronically and never even have to make contact with the person who's, you know, making my ramen noodles. Mm. So that's scary when you think about it. I, you could go think about how long you could realistically go and survive just fine. I think this might be a good time for a quick commercial break. Have you ever been curious about what makes a good leader? Or considered running or starting your own nonprofit organization? Whitworth University's Graduate Studies in Education, Administrative, and Nonprofit Leadership Program was designed for leaders ready to make a lasting impact in their communities. If you've ever thought about leadership, or have aspirations of better serving your community, do us a favor and check us out online at whitworth.edu GSE. Thank you so much, Monica, Emily, and Candice. This is Michelle Brown coming to you from my couch. Uh, I'm sorry I wasn't able to be in studio with my fabulous team, but I definitely wanted to contribute to the conversation about money this week as we lean into deconstructing another social construct. Um, money is a really important one for us to examine and look at as Emily and Monica have already begun to do. Now, what I'd like to offer in my reflection as it relates to money is specifically how money creates barriers in one's ability to access resources and also access each other. So to get started, I'd like to begin by um, just naming that we all know that our social world is very much defined by the haves and have nots and that money, wealth, plays a large role in this. We also know that the mental models we are socialized to believe around money and access has profound impacts on how we see ourselves and others. Many of our American ideals and defin definitions of success, like Emily's already mentioned, are very much linked to financial success. So, how is money entangled in our country's myths of meritocracy and individualism? Many of society's ills are intimately tied to money because as we know, money equals access and which equals power. And while many of our greatest community challenges from poverty, the climate crisis, and even war are intimately connected to wealth and power, many advocates challenge the idea that throwing money at the problem will even eradicate it. Often citing Albert Einstein, who says, we can't solve problems by using the same kind of thinking we use to create them. Or how about Audre Lorde, who said, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. I think it's fair for us to ask in our conversation about money is, how does money limit our imagination 
or limit the value we place on human necessities that don't fit within a monetary economy. So, for example, the economy of care. And when I'm talking about the economy of care, I'm talking about all the time, labor, love, and resources that goes into caring for our society's most vulnerable. Children, the elderly, those that are disabled, the, um, also the amount of time and energy that goes into managing a home and providing long-term unpaid support to the community, which includes friends, neighbors, and other acquaintances. These unpaid care hours are essential for how we function in life, yet they are often ignored and taken for granted. And yes, again, I'm going to say it, unpaid which perhaps directly correlates to this works, air quotes, value, we won't get into the fact that how 76% of, the, of this work, this care work, globally is performed by women, and how that might too might impact our society's quote-unquote value of this work. What I think, though, is essential for us to keep in mind and why I'm even bringing up the care economy in our conversation about money is that up and beyond money, it is the caring human being that keeps society running. And that's paid or not paid. In good or bad times, in times of crisis and war, in the formal and informal economy, and in modern and traditional societies. Thera Van Osh, in her essay on care economies, says... The economy of care is always there. Care is a key feature of the global economy, global human context, excuse me, in which the market economy is embedded. Even if the market collapses, the economy of care continues to function. And it is in times of coronavirus like we're in now that this rings even more true. So next, I'd like to uh, take a dive into looking at how, how money can perhaps limit our access to each other. And I think, as I was just talking about in regards to the care economy and what we pay attention to and what we don't pay attention to um, and how that's impacted by money. But also, uh, it's really interesting in my research for um, this podcast, I came across some research that's been done um, that is exploring money's impact on our social relationships. And there is a recent research study by Nicole Mead, who is a professor at the Rotterdam School of Management in the Netherlands. Um, and she designed an experiment to gauge whether indirect reminders of money could influence how individuals perceive another person during an encounter. Now, what she and her fellow researchers found was that individuals who had been reminded of money perceived the other person to be less likable during their interactions. And so what they're essentially indicating is that subtle money cues can impact interpersonal harmony. I, now, I think this is fascinating. That money priming dampened their interactions and their interpersonal appeal of the other. So money, somehow, when money was brought up prior to the interactions uh, and during this research experiment, it impacted how folks came into space with one another. And so what she and her fellow researchers found 
was that individuals who had been reminded of money perceived the other person to be less likable during their interactions, indicating again that subtle money cues can impact interpersonal harmony, like I already said. Mead and her colleagues suspect that money doesn't necessarily make people not want to have relationships with others in general, but rather what might be going on is that they just want very specific types of relationships. It's more about engaging in the relationship based on principles of exchange rather than communal bonds. Okay, so like, again, so when money is brought up prior to an interpersonal exchange with strangers, it impacted how they went into the interaction. So those that didn't have money priming prior interacted differently, uh, interacted more based on communal bonds and while those that had money priming um, entered into the, the interaction perhaps a little less trusting, uh, perhaps a little bit more reserved, and was expecting a more transactional kind of relationship. So what Mead and her colleagues concluded was that when you prime people with money, they approach their social interactions in a fundamentally different way than they normally would. And I just think this is so interesting and important, especially as we um, are talking about, you know, not only how we perceive ourselves in the conversation of money, but also how we perceive others. And then also how money impacts our relationship with other human beings. This, this topic of money is just so fascinating, um, you know, because it goes beyond just the monetary value, um, how we use it for exchange, how we, um, how we purchase things, but it goes up and beyond all those and has this profound impact in how we see ourselves and others. And I really think that's the conversation that we're trying to get at here. That's why we should be talking about money, because I think if we're not talking about these these real experiences of money and how money really impacts not only our daily lives and, you know, our ability to access resources and, um, you know, um, positionality to power, but also just our basic human functioning, um, how we know ourselves and how we um, interact with others. So with that, I think we're going to turn it over for a commercial break. At Spokane Treatment and Recovery Services, we are dedicated to our community. That is why we have a sobering unit that runs 24-7 and is the first step into our detox unit. We are fully staffed around the clock in order to make sure that we can answer any questions over the phone while we serve our clientele. For more information or to call anytime, day or night, you can dial Shayla. So this does beg the question though, is there is there a need for money in our modern society? 
Um, now, there's definitely a need for efficiency, right? This, we talked about this last week and, you know, how human beings make decisions that we need to cut down on, you know, alternate uh, obstacles or uh, variances in order to make decisions that allow us to function in society. Now, if that didn't make sense, go and listen to our episode last week and you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, so, you know, as, as Emily kind of explained, money was not always necessary, right? It was this fill the other guy's basket mentality. Um, you know, I help you with what you need and you help me with what I need. And that is the end of the transaction. You know, it's, it's less of a, of a, my worth can be measured against your worth because they're measured by the same means, right? Now, it might not be necessary, but the way that society is nowadays, it's become pretty necessary. If we want to continue the way we have things, we do need this efficient method of barter exchange, right? So I think the the bigger questions to ask, because we're not going to go ahead and abolish money, right, is to understand for ourselves what does money say and what can it say, right? What does it say to you? Because we can look at... Um, that that hesitation, um, you know, say that I had in speaking about my need for money or lack thereof. And I think the, the reasoning behind that comes from this idea that money is kind of a taboo topic, right? It's it's something that's supposed to be seen and not heard. Should we should we ignore money from the conversation? Should we keep it separate? But can we do that without inherently thinking within ourselves? you know, what that money means. Because even though I don't speak it out loud, how much debt I owe, I think it to myself far too often, right? And it still means something to me. So can we remove money from the conversation without making it louder by not talking about it? Mm -hmm. Or should we absorb it? Should we embrace it? You know, something to think about. I want you guys to ask that and go ahead and give me your answer because I want to hear from you. I don't have the answers. So... As you guys know from my last podcast, I love to bring in sayings from other cultures and other languages. You will love this. So, and this also gives us a little bit of a perspective as to how other countries or other cultures see money. So, it's unclear whether this is Spanish from Spain or Spanish from like Mexico, South America, Central America. But there's a saying in Spanish that it says, more wool than lamb. And it's a saying that means like, oh, they have a lot of money. Hmm. Interesting. It's kind of like, oh, that person has more, more than they need, maybe. Ooh, okay. And then there's one in German that I love. If someone has more money, like a lot of money, or lives very extravagantly, uh, a German person would say, that person lives like a worm in bacon. <laughs> Oh, I'm stealing that. I'm just imagining this like very fat worm just sitting there eating bacon, like raw bacon being gross. Okay, if somebody can draw a sketch of that and and submit that to us, you win brownie points. We'll post that on our Instagram page. Yes. And then this is my favorite one. So in Bulgaria, what they say about money is friendship is friendship, but cheese costs money. (laughs) (laughs) I love cheese. So that's a perfect saying. And I really kind of identify with that one because I like expensive cheese. Mm. And whenever I make a charcuterie board with my roommates, I get a little bit like possessive of my (laughs) cheese. 
Because even though I'm friends with them, it's like, but this is my expensive cheese. They don't appreciate the value like you do. I think they do. They just <laughs> like my cheese better. And so they... Oh, what is your favorite cheese? Okay, so I also have a dairy allergy. So I can oh only gosh. I can only have goat cheese and cheeses that are from like sheep. And so mm-hmm. I just love goat cheese in all its forms. Interesting. But anyway, getting back sorry, to sorry, how sidebar. Yeah, sidebar. <laughs> getting back to how other cultures see money and then how American culture sees money. We'll start with American culture now. So in American culture, how much you make is really a measure of how successful you are. Like that's how people in America see it. But on the flip side, there are people who work extremely hard who don't make much at all or may not make anything. I mean, you think about unpaid internships, 60% of all internships are unpaid, okay? 60%, 70% of internships are part-time, 60% are unpaid. So you're basically getting this free labor from someone in exchange for this job experience, but at the same time, like... I, I have to get paid. Like, I have to pay my bills so I can pay my landlord and get water and have internet. And so even though American culture says, oh, how much you make is how successful you are, and is, it shows how much, how hard you work, it's kind of wonky right now, right? People are kind of already starting to think like, oh, money is kind of this exploitive thing. Um in the 1850s, Americans used to measure the success of our country through its literacy, looking at incarceration rates, crime rates, the education of its populace, how many people are uh, disabled or in insane asylums, how many people receive welfare, as well as life expectancy and disease. Now, some of those <laughs> metrics are a little problematic, right? Incarceration is this socially constructed measurement. We determine what things are illegal and what things aren't. And that's fluid, right? And that that's fluid, right? Well. The, the biggest form of theft, look this up. I don't have the statistics in front of me. But the biggest form of theft is wage theft. And you don't go to prison for depriving your employees of their wages, if anybody just smacked their forehead with their palm, um, yeah, I, I feel you. Yeah. So anyway, even though those are like basing the success of your country on its incarceration rate is very problematic, at least it focused on a holistic way to measure someone's success, right? You would say, oh, that person's really successful because they lived a long time or that person's really successful because... They built this library, but then in those 1850s, they started to create this idea that we need to measure someone's success based on their wealth. Um, However, I will say that money in economic terms was used as an argument against slavery. So I guess that's... One point for money. One one (laughs) point for money. Um, So, I mean, in the long run... I would say that money, what we really need to do is change the way that we think about money. How hard someone works is not a direct reflection of how much money they make. I volunteer for some for a nonprofit and I don't get paid for that, but that doesn't mean that I don't work hard and don't help my nonprofit be more successful. It's just 
a different way of measuring the work that I do. So would you say that you would vote for, in the question of, you know, should we exclude money from the conversation or should we make it detached from our ideas mm-hmm. of self-worth, would you say that you're on the side of, you know, we should just detach it from our self-worth, but it should be part of the conversation? I think that at this point, it's so hard to disentangle ourselves from wealth because I am very proud of like what I've saved and I've sacrificed things for what I've saved in my life. And it, it feels icky to give that up. But at the Mm -hmm. same time, like it shouldn't be indicative of what I have achieved because even though I've worked for three years and I've saved up a certain amount, doesn't mean that someone else who hasn't saved as much money isn't just as worthy and hasn't worked just as hard, if not harder. I mean, People my age have kids and they spend money on their kids and my, and, and things like that. And so Mm -hmm. it's just like, what do we attach that value to? Is the value on the money in your bank account or is it on the experiences that you've had? Couldn't agree more. I mean, gosh, I was uh, all excited the other day because I hit that point where I'm two months away from completely paying off one of my loans. And so I'm excited about getting back to zero you know, what does that say? Um, so it's, you know, it is very much relative. And I, I think you're right. I don't think that we can detangle it completely from, you know, from how we speak and how we, it, it is such this integral mm-hmm. part of our society. But I think that we can beg the question, what does money say? Mm-hmm. And what does it say to us? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I think that we do need to detach that that self-worth aspect Mm -hmm. of it um you know if anybody asked me today why I work so much I will openly tell them that I have debt and that I (laughs) but also that I enjoy what I do (laughs) I think the biggest thing is just talk about it you think about the systems that are put in place in this capitalist society like the unpaid internships for example Mm -hmm. right if we don't have this awareness of how many people are shut out of professions because the only base level jobs are unpaid internships. We're excluding a huge portion of the population that can't afford to not be paid for their work, right? And so, especially as someone who's been part of a union, I was a teacher for the last three years, those conversations about money actually help make you more powerful Because then you can go to the business or the corporation or the person that you work for and you can say, hey, the person over there is being paid this, but I'm paying this. Why is that? Mm -hmm. So you kind of take back some of that power and you kind of make the other person feel uncomfortable because you feel comfortable to talk about money. All right, that's it. We got two votes for uh, we need to make money a bigger part of the conversation, but detach it from you know, how you see yourself as, as that being a reliant factor. So we want to hear from you guys and, you know, give us some, give us your rags to riches story. Give us your polar stories. If you, if you started off with a trust fund, now you got nothing. I want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But again, talk about it. Yes. That's the biggest thing that we can say is talk about money. All right, guys, that's all the time we have this week. Uh, So we will let you go. Don't forget to comment like subscribe and please uh you know give us your thoughts your feedback and we will be joining you next week when we talk about beauty